Hi, this is Eki. Before you listen to the recording of our first session on biblical counseling, I just wanted to notify you that electronic copies of the documents that we distributed that night are available for download at westernavenuebaptist.org. Again, that's westernavenuebaptist.org. You can navigate to the sermons section and find the link where this recording is available at, and I will include uh, those two links um, as well for those documents. Specifically, you'll find two documents available for download. The first one is a one-page document that contains four general counseling books that I recommend for reading. Um, I will look to make these books available for anyone desiring to come into the church to read them. But just to give you a brief survey of these books, uh, the first is a book written by Paul David Tripp called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Paul David Tripp is the author. The book is Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Hands. And the second one is called A Theology of Biblical Counseling by Heath Lambert. Um, really, these two resources are the most recent, um, recently written. So if you can only afford two, if you only want to buy two, those are the two that I would get. Um, the other two, uh, uh, the other two, the third one is A Theology of Christian Counseling by Jay Adams. Um, Jay Adams wrote this um, probably back in the late 70s or early 80s. So this is a little bit more dated but it does have very good detailed uh, information that may not be available in the first two. And the fourth uh, resource is called Counseling, How to Counsel Biblically, which is written by John MacArthur and what was the faculty at that time at the Master's College. Each of these four resources will provide different viewpoints into the practice of biblical counseling. Um, so they will be helpful in terms of growing in this area and understanding um, how to view this uh, practice. Um, in addition, there is also a certification process that I will provide more information on in future weeks. This is not a requirement, but for those interested in the process, there is additional reading, um, essay questions, and other activities that will help further the um, learning and, and education process as well. The second document that I will provide a link to essentially is the student notes that was distributed um, on that night when we began our session. Um, again, both these documents, uh, the recommended resources and the student notes will be available on our website at westernavenuebaptist.org. And with that, let's proceed to the recording of that first session. So you all have a handout, the Biblical Counseling Level 1 material handout, which is um, about uh, 13 pages. Well, it's double-sided, so it's like seven pages uh, total. Um, and if you uh, look at your table of contents, and, and uh, Maureen just pointed this out, so what we're going to do first is we're going to go just through the first couple of sections um, that's listed here. Um, so the I have original material that I got from Grace Community Church, but that belongs to Grace Community Church. So I'm having to kind of create my own material on the fly as we go. And uh, what I have is um, what you have a printout of is of the first two sections. And uh, we probably won't even go through all the first two sections tonight. It might even take us a few weeks to get through it. Um, but as we um, advance on to other sections, then I'll start to create those other sections, print them out. And at the end of all this, I'll give you an updated table of contents that has the um, updated uh, um, page numbers. But if we were to look at the table of contents uh, real quick, the first is a definition of biblical counseling. So I say biblical counseling, what is it? What does that mean? Um, the, the second is a theological foundation. And what that means is in terms of what does the Bible say in terms of um, what, what we're recommending as part of biblical counseling? So after I define to you what is biblical counseling, we're going to see um, how the Bible supports it and um, how we go about approaching it. 
And you may know that there's um, you, you may know there's there's a lot of churches that don't necessarily hold to um, the inerrancy of the scriptures, um, or they they hold to this idea that you can interpret it any way you like, right? And the you're going to find out that there's a real problem with that when it comes to biblical counseling because. If the scriptures can be interpreted however you like, then you could basically make it whatever you want it to say. And, and now there's no more specific counseling for your actual issues and needs, right? You don't want to go into a hospital with a real need and have a bunch of doctors um, telling you what, um, what they think um, is, is right rather than just telling you what is right, right? You, you want uh, people who have very clear answers in terms of how to solve your issues, not a bunch of people that um, are just interpreting things their own ways. And then uh, section three, which I haven't created yet, is a comparison of counseling models. What that's going to be about is I'm going to compare really the basis of biblical counseling um, with a lot of the secular um, models of counseling. And, and you're going to see some very key differences um, between how they approach problems and, and specifically um, the, the different worldviews. And when I say worldviews, um, worldview is just a reflection of how you see the world around you. It's a reflection of how, um, how you view things. So, for instance, as a very simple example, um, if you believe that Genesis 1 uh, describes a literal six-day creation and someone else believes in evolution, um, then you're going to look at um, archaeological artifacts very differently. You know, someone's going to look at an archaeological artifact and say, this came from millions and millions and millions of years ago. You know, whereas we might look at the same and say, no, that was a result of the Great Flood or, or this and that. So worldview um, really matters in terms of how you interpret things. And what you'll see from a lot of those secular counseling approaches is that their starting off, their, their starting point is not the Bible. Their starting point is, is this um, evolutionary uh, model of, of mankind apart from, apart from God. Section four, the physical and spiritual aspects of counseling. Um, that gets into both um, the fact that we are um, physical beings, all right, and, uh, but we're also spiritual beings. There's both an inner man and an outer man. And when it comes to counseling, we have to be aware of both um, because things that you go through physically can really affect you spiritually and vice versa. Things that you're going through spiritually can really affect you um, physically. And I'll give you just one really simple example. You may remember that uh, Marty Ellett uh, was here one Sunday morning talking about the um, need to stand up for pro-life, right, um, and, uh, and stand against uh, abortion. And he shared a statistic that uh, women who commit uh, abortion are six times more likely to commit suicide, right? And, and that's very real. That's, that's, uh, that's an example where spiritual and physical have an impact upon each other. And even the ones who do not commit suicide, you know, they, they will suffer physically um, because spiritually they're, they're carrying that guilt with them. And so there, there's very much a connection there. We'll talk about that in section four. And in section five, we talk about the biblical process of change. Um, that's where biblically we show, okay, if you have things that are holding you back, if you have struggles in life, um, there is a biblical process um, that is actually very easy to understand and well-supported that, that you can step through to, to start to change. And, um, and, and one of the key verses that comes to mind, we're going to get there pretty soon in Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, where Paul says you're laying aside the old self and, and essentially you're putting on the new self. And that is, um, that, that is key towards um, making change in our own life. Um, verse, uh, I'm sorry, not verse, uh, section five is, um, that, that was the biblical process of change. Section six, godly attitudes in the Christian life. Um, you know, we talk about um, the, the, the types of attributes and characteristics that people in Christ have. 
And, and this is going to be a challenge. This is where we start to get into, um, you know, where we, we start to examine our own selves, our own walks. Are we modeling um, the Christian walk? Is there joy and is there peace? Um, is there humility um, in our life? Uh, would people describe us that way? And uh, that, that's going to be um, very um, convicting and it's going to be very helpful um, as you counsel others. And then uh, the, the rest starts to get into really kind of the technical elements of doing uh, biblical counseling. Um, involvement is just to say that when we talk about biblical counseling, this is not clinical, but this is um, life on life. This is discipleship. This is not, uh, hey, let's go meet in an office and sit down for an hour. Uh, but this is really meant as, uh, as you know, let's, uh, let's open up our lives to each other. Let's, let's be around each other. Let's learn from each other. Let's, let's you know, let, let the people that you're counseling be able to see your life as an example and, uh, and, and let uh, hopefully their life is open to you that you can observe and, and, uh, and be there for them. And then uh, the gathering data, interpreting data, this is just saying that whenever you first start to counsel um, people, especially people that you don't know, I, I don't know that that's, this is going to be as critical here um, to the extent um, that it is at, for instance, Grace Community Church. Because, for instance, at Grace Community Church, when um, I'm called to counsel people, it's people that I, I've never met, I have no background on, I know nothing about them. And so there's a form that we'll normally have them fill out. And um, there's a lot of both uh, physical and spiritual questions, like when did you come to Christ? Who have you seen about this problem? Describe what your problem is. Um, are, there, are you going through any physical issues? Is there a lack of sleep? Have you seen a doctor? Those kinds of things. So there's a process of gathering data, and the whole point of that is to help you um, get a holistic view of what, that, uh, what the situation that person's in, what they're going through, who they've seen, and uh, that will be very helpful in in helping the counselor understand um, how to best address whatever they're going through. And then interpreting data is just interpreting that data that you're gathering. And uh, it, providing instruction, um, obviously counseling comes with counseling. And so the providing instruction is, is how do you counsel those people as, they, um, as you um, end your, your time with them. And then giving hope is always important, uh, no matter what we do. And that was a big theme for this morning, wasn't it? Um, that was a wonderful message from Ben Murray. And uh, giving hope is something that we always want to do with one another, to let people know that if you're in Christ, and this is very important, if you're in Christ, there is always hope. There is always hope, no matter what situation you're going through. Um, and then uh, the rest, homework that facilitates change. Um, there is homework that's, uh, that, that can often be involved with uh, biblical counseling because um, one hour um, a week, let's say you're meeting for someone for one hour a week, you can't expect one hour a week to suddenly change their lives. You, know, you, you want them to, to actually be doing something during the week to, to give them something to meditate upon, think, give them something to think upon you know, and, uh, because people can easily slip right back into bad habits. Um, or prior habits, destructive habits. So homework is, is a big part of that. And then uh, crisis counseling um, is uh, it's actually a section that um, Bill Shannon himself normally doesn't cover. And then I went to Ukraine and I had to teach through this. And I was like, he never covers crisis counseling. And then I went through it and I realized why. Because crisis counseling is really just a summary of everything else. It's just, you know, you're on the spot. And, and the most important thing with someone who is in a crisis is that you want to make sure that... Uh, that they're not going to do anything to themselves, right? They're not going to end their lives. They're not going to, uh, you know, uh, take their, their lives at, at a moment's notice. But you want to give them hope, get them, get them around people, um, make sure that they're not by themselves, those kinds of things. And then a biblical view of one's past. Um, this is going to, um, I think this is going to change a, a, a lot of people's perceptions about the value of people's past. So a lot of times when you sit down and talk to people who are going through a crisis, they'll relate to you what's happened to them in the past. 
and, and there's a carryover effect that I'm this way because of things that have happened in my, in my past. You know, this happened to me, so it has this effect on me. This happened to me, so it has this effect on me. And there is um, a sense in which we can continue to hold on to that to our own detriment. Um, and so we, we want to, in that section, have a biblical view of how to view your own past and how to ultimately um, overcome that. So um, th those are just the sections there. Obviously, I only have the first two sections printed out for you, but I'll have the other sections um, as, we, as we get there. All right. All right. So now um, we'll advance to our opening section, which is a definition of biblical counseling, a definition of biblical counseling. And I'll start by talking about what biblical counseling is not, and then we'll go into what biblical counseling uh, really is. And um, first and foremost, biblical counseling is not in autonomous ministry. What do I mean by that? Well, when you look around, there's a lot of parachurch ministries that, uh, that we have around us. For instance, uh, prison fellow, um, fellowship ministries um, is one. Um, Campus Crusade is, is another. There, there's a lot of um, parachurch ministries that kind of operate outside the boundaries of a church. They, they kind of operate on their own. Biblical counseling is not meant to operate that way. And uh, Matthew 18 is a, is a good example. So if you go to Matthew 18, um, we'll take a look at that really quick. That's, um, that's basically the process of church discipline. Matthew 18, verses uh, 15 uh, through 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. And it's interesting, I had lunch with Ben Murray after um, this morning's message, and we actually talked about church discipline. He talked about the church that he was at um, was not a church that exercised church discipline. And um, as in the process of them trying to become more biblical in, in their church model, they started to institute church discipline. And, and you're going to see in a moment why this is critical, but I remember um, we had... Uh, we had someone at, um, at, at Grace Community Church who was, um, was not repenting of, of a pretty serious sin and uh, that, that this person had been confronted and, and the process had been followed and that person decided to leave and go to another church um, before the process could complete. Well, Bill Shannon, being a shepherd, wanted to contact the shepherd, that the pastor of that church, and say, hey, you know, I just want to let you know so-and-so is there and we've been counseling this person to try to get back together with their spouse and, and work things out and whatnot. And, um, and, you know, the response back from that shepherd is like, um, no, we don't get involved in those issues. We, we don't get involved in people's lives like that. And then um, Pastor Bill, is, is, he can be very blunt. He, he said, oh, so you guys don't shepherd. And then he just hung up on him. Um, you know, but those, those, kinds of, those kinds of things um, happen. And if, um, if you don't have um, church discipline, then it, it's, um, it's impossible to actually hold someone ultimately accountable. Someone can be in unrepentant sin and still just continue coming to the body of Christ. And it has a f effect of kind of leavening the, the lump of bread, right? A little leaven leavens the, the lump, and, uh, and so that, that can happen. But Matthew um, 18, verse 15, and this is um, only the second time that Jesus Christ mentions the word church. Um, the first time is two chapters back in Matthew 16 when he says, I will build my church. After Peter made that confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew 18, 15, he says this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, so that, that is the process of, of church discipline. 
Um, and in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth um, shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Basically, this is Jesus Christ giving the church um, not only the responsibility, but the expectation that if someone is not willing to repent of, of a serious sin, you are to put them out of the body of Christ um, until they repent. And um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, later would go on to talk about that. The, the goal is, is to, to win them over. It's to bring them back. It's that um, there would be what he calls a destruction of the flesh by, by Satan. And that that person would come back uh, into the church. But what we see here is that you cannot confront someone. Um, confrontation, you can't follow this, this model of, of confrontation um, unless there is a church that's, that's accountable to, to these verses that, that are willing to put someone out. And, uh, and so it, it needs to be with a church. Biblical counseling needs to be connected uh, to a church. Um, so that's, um, that's that first point that I've mentioned, that biblical counseling is not an autonomous ministry. Now, point number two, biblical counseling is not reserved for the experts. Any believer willing to be like a Berean can do biblical counseling. And um, I won't go there, but Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, that's the, that's the verses where Paul goes to meet the noble Bereans, right? He's, he's traveling from city to city, and then he goes into Berea, and, and these Bereans are called noble for a very specific reason. And when you think about, if you remember when I uh, pre preached through Ephesians 4.11, you know, we talked about how Jesus Christ gave to the church some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, um, Paul is an example of someone who is all five of those things. He was an apostle, a, pa a pastor, an evangelist. Um, uh, um, I'm sorry, a, a, an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher. You know, and, and, and despite being all these things, despite being this great apostle and, and this chosen instrument of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bereans didn't just simply say, oh, because of who you are, we're just going to accept everything you say. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't do that. You know, in fact, they were called noble specifically because they were willing to listen, but they were also willing to go to the scriptures to examine if these things are so. You know, and these Bereans, these were not, um, you know, the religious elite. These were not, you know, um, they, they were not any different from anyone else except they were willing to examine the scriptures. They were willing to, uh, to, to double check everything that they heard. So if you're willing to study the Bible and, uh, and validate uh, what, what you hear, um, what you learn, and also go to the scriptures to understand what it says about um, certain challenges, certain topics. Um, you can do biblical counseling. And you already do biblical counseling to some extent. You just may not realize it, right? I mean, when you, when you see someone um, who is a fellow brother or sister in Christ and they haven't been going to church, what do you tell them? Go to church, right? That's biblical counseling, you know, because it's biblical. You need to be in church. You need to be with the, with the body of Christ. Now, to, to really make it biblical counseling, you'd want to bring a verse to them. And say, hey, you know, do not do not neglect the regular assembly of believers, right? Um, or you can point to any of the letters that that are written to the church. Any of the letters, such as Ephesians, um, is written to a body of believers, not to individual believers. It's written to a body of believers. So anyone um, willing to be a Berean can do biblical counseling, and we all do it to some extent. We just want to be able to extend the um, the the um, the the skill, the skill and the ability that we have in terms of what we can address. Okay, point number three. Biblical counseling is not an optional ministry. It is not an optional ministry. And, and let me take you to, I know I've got Acts 20, 31 there, but let me take you to Romans 15, 14. Romans 15, 14.
Romans 15, 14, and I'm going here because Paul is um, addressing all believers here. He's not just talking about what he does, but he is addressing all believers. Um, and he's even addressing really believers that he has not met yet. So if you know the book of Rome, uh, Romans, you, you know that he's writing to people that he has not met, but he would like to meet. There are some key people there that he knows, but it, for the most part, it's a body of believers that he has not yet met. And in chapter 15, verse 14, um, he says this, and, and this is right after the verses that uh, Ben Murray had just preached on this morning. But verse 14 says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Admonish. Now that word admonish, uh, in the Greek, it's uh, nutheteo. And, and the only reason why I bring it up is this. The counseling practice used to be called nuthetic counseling. And it was based upon this word. And this idea of admonish is um, instruction. Um, there, there's correction in this. You know, so it's the idea that we hold each other accountable. Uh, we instruct one another. We, we can correct one another when needed. Um, but Paul is here saying that you guys are able to do this to one another. In other words, you don't need me to be there to correct you. Um, if you're full of goodness, if, you, if you're in the body of Christ, if you're in the word of God, if, if, you, if you have the knowledge that comes from the word of God, which you should if you're going to church and you're hearing the preaching and if you're in your Bible and, and studying it, um, you're able to admonish one another. It's not simply just for the experts. Um, so here, this is just an expectation of all believers. So I would say biblically, um, everyone is expected to do biblical counseling. Everyone is expected to do biblical counseling. This is not just for the experts. Now, the organization I'm part of, ACBC, um, they, they have certified me. Okay, so I'm a certified biblical counselor. But I bring this up for this reason. You don't need to be certified to counsel one another. There's nothing in the Bible that says you need to go to some external organization and be certified before you can start counseling or admonishing one another. Right? If you know the Bible, you can do it. Right. The, the value of certification is just if I were to go to a different church, if I was to go, go to a different area, if I was to, um, to, to teach on the topic, the certification helps those people know that I've been through this training and that I believe that the scriptures are sufficient um, for, for personal and biblical counseling. All right. Any questions uh, so far? By the way, you can just raise your hands um, as we go if you have any questions. Um, let's go ahead and take a look at Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Because that word admonish, we're going to see that word show up um, again. It's the exact same word. Paul uses it here in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. So from the book of Romans, uh, a few books over to the left, or one book over to the left, and you'll get to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, verse um, 31, he says, um, Paul is talking to the elders, actually from Ephesus. So he's talking to the elders from Ephesus. And he says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Um, this is Paul just pouring his life into them, trying to get them to change in a biblical way. He says, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And then you combine that with the passage we just saw in Romans that he said, you guys, you guys are able to admonish one another. Um, so what he did uh, for the people in Ephesus, uh, he's telling the Romans they, they can do for each other. Right. And then uh, Colossians 1.28, you don't have to turn there. I'll go ahead and read that to you. Colossians 1.28, uh, Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man 
and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So let me read that again. We proclaim him, meaning we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And when he says every man, that's not just men, uh, that's, that's both men and women. Um, I think all of us want to be more like Christ. Amen? We all want to be like Christ. We want to be complete in Christ. And so Paul here is saying that we're, you know, part of that admonishing is for the purpose of making us complete in Christ. And that's what we're doing for each other. You know, you, you want to be involved in each other's lives enough that when people are struggling or if you see areas that, that, that you think may need to, to be addressed, you know, your goal is not, um, is not to, to establish your moral superiority. You know, your, your goal is not to just simply beat someone over the head with the Bible. Your, your goal is that um, you want to be complete in Christ and you want your fellow brothers and sisters to be complete in Christ. And, um, and that's part of the value of the church. You know, that's part of the value of having a body of believers, why, why Jesus Christ died for us, and, and, and we were all baptized into the church that we would be together helping to um, sanctify one another, helping to challenge each other to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So biblical counseling, not in optional ministry. Uh, and uh, number four, biblical counseling is not separated from discipleship. Now, the verses I have there, you don't have to turn there, but that's the Great Commission. And we know the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations. But it's not just go and make disciples of all the nations. He goes on to say, um, teaching them to do what? Anyone know? To observe all that I have commanded you. And that's, you know, when you think about it, uh, you know, that's, um, you know that, that's biblical counseling. You know, we're, we're teaching, we're instructing each other to observe and to follow the example of Jesus Christ. So really the Great Commission, and then oftentimes one of the... Um, you know, one of the short-sighted uh, um, understandings of the Great Commission is that people just tend to think only about evangelism. But it's not just about evangelism. You know, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? But make disciples. Make disciples. The idea of a disciple is the same word that we get the word student. You, you know, someone who's going to learn from you. You know, it's not just a one-time thing where you share the gospel and you leave. You know, make disciples means you're going to be a part of that person's life. And, of course, there is evangelism involved in that. That's the whole idea of baptizing them, that, you know, you're, you're meeting unbelievers and you're helping to share the gospel, bring them to Christ, but you're making them disciples. Um, and uh, by disciples, you're, you're being a part of their life and you want to help show them, okay, now you're in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? You know, how does your life change? You know, how do we behave? What, what, are, what are some of the changes we make in our own lives? And one of the sad realities is that without discipleship, without that involvement, um, there's a lot of people that um, continue doing what they did before, um, and they don't realize always what the issue is. Um, sometimes they, they do. I mean, you know, there are certain sins that a lot of people will forsake right away, depending upon the person. Um, but then there are other um, habits and patterns that a person may have in his or her life that he or she doesn't realize is, is, um, is serving as an obstacle, you know, serving to, to hinder that person. Um, so the discipleship helps to, um, to, to clear those things up. Um, Number five, biblical counseling is not insensitive or uncaring. So the, the term biblical counseling, it can, like I said, it can sound really clinical, but this is meant to be life-on-life -life, um, discipleship. Um, it is not insensitive or uncaring. And Acts 20, 31, that was the verse that we had read already where Paul said, um, day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you with tears, right? I did not cease to admonish you with tears. So obviously that is not an uncaring ministry. 
And, um, and by the way, you know, the Apostle Paul, he writes some hard letters. We know that. Even the Apostle Peter said some of, his, some of the things that he writes are difficult or hard to understand. But you know what's amazing about that, um, about that speech that he had to the Ephesian elders? Because it was the last time he was going to see them. Um, he, he brought them to a place called Miletus because he wanted to speak to them. He was planning to go to Jerusalem, and he was fully expecting to be persecuted when he went to Jerusalem. And he said, okay, this will be the last time that I see you. So he gave this final speech to them, telling them to be, care, you know, be careful that there's going to be people that are going to rise up amongst them as, as wolves in sheep clothes, sheep's, sheep's clothing and all that. But after he was done, um, what the book of Acts say, and you can read it in um, chapter 20, um, they were all crying. I mean, they, they got gathered together with Paul, and they were in tears as, as he was about to leave. Um, so, so this is not some, um, some uncaring taskmaster that they're like, good, we finally got this guy out of our hair. We got, finally got this guy out of our life. No, Paul was tough, but, but he was loving. And, um, and they, they hated to see him go. And it was a very emotional moment to, to see them go. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, this is a good one to go to. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 um, go to First Thessalonians, or if not, I'll just read it to you. First Thessalonians five fourteen, and and in the book of First Thessalonians, Paul is writing to um, a very um, young church. Okay, this is a very young church, brand new believers um, in the book of uh, First and, and Second Thessalonians, and um, but he says this in First Thessalonians uh, five fourteen. He says, "We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly." Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now, what's very interesting is that um, Paul is basically saying you're not going to take the same approach with everyone. You're not going to take the same approach with everyone. And once again, he says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. So if they're unruly, you know, be, be willing to rebuke them, correct them, um, instruct them. Um, but he says, encourage the faint-hearted. You know, so, so those who are um, perhaps discouraged, those who are faint-hearted, those who are in, in a time of, um, of just um, needing that kind of encouragement, just give them encouragement. You know, you, you help the weak and you be patient uh, with, with everyone. Um, so once again, this is, not, um, this is not some cold calculating ministry, but it's one that um, you, you want to be able to assess what people are going through and, and then think through biblically what it is that that person needs the most. Um, you know, when a, when a person loses a loved one, especially a child, you know, um, I, I firmly believe in Romans eight twenty eight that God causes all things to come together for good, right? Um, that's not the verse I'm going to bring to a parent that just lost their child, right? That, that truth may be there, um, but that's not, that's not the, the, the truth that I'm going to bring to them as they're mourning. You know, I'm, I'm going to be there with them. I'm going to weep with them because it's, it's hard losing a loved one, and we, and we have to recognize that. I remember seeing a... A former basketball coach, actually not a former basketball, he's a basketball coach now for the Phoenix Suns, uh, Monty Williams, uh, Monty Williams, and if you ever get a chance, you may want to check YouTube on this. He, um, he lost his wife in a fatal car accident, and, and it wasn't the wife's fault. I believe the other driver was drunk or under the influence or something like that. Um, she died, and um, there was a, a video of Monty Williams um, speaking at um, her um, memorial service, and, um, and he actually quoted Romans 8.28. He said, don't feel sorry for me. And he quoted Romans 8.28. He says, God causes all things to come together for good. And um, that, that was the most painful loss in his life. But he actually was able to quote that for himself. And, uh, and, and immediately when you see someone like that, uh, you see someone who really, really trusts in God. I mean, it takes, it takes a really mature faith in God to be able to say that um, amidst that loss. 
and and some for for some who who are very mature they they can they can do that. Um, there was a, a family, um, a couple that um, actually a missionary in Utah, and uh, they had come back to Los Angeles because they were um, enrolling their kids at the Master's College, and had two daughters and, and a friend of, of these two daughters. The friend was a non-believer, but the two daughters are believers. One of the daughters was enrolling in the college, and, and they went down there. And then they got into an accident um, where the, the, the parents survived, but the, um, the, the two daughters both died. The two daughters both died. Um, the, the friend of the two daughters lived. And uh, the, the, the parents, um, though they had experienced great loss, actually um, shared with people that they were thankful that God spared the one who did not yet know God. You know, that's, you know, if you know your daughters are in Christ, um, then even in that time of loss, you understand that they're, that they're with the Creator. They're, they're in a much better place. And for them to look at the one who was unsaved and be able to say, we were so thankful that he spared you because you don't know Christ. Um, that, I mean, that, that, is, that is a family that clearly understands um, the, the big picture. Right? And, and that's our goal. You know, the, the more of the big picture we understand, um, the more we can respond in, in, a, in a way that's going to amaze people around us. You know, because it's, it's going to be during those times when you go through trials that your Christianity um, will be shown to be genuine. You know, it's, uh, that's, that's when people will know what you believe is the real thing. Now, we don't always pass that test. I understand that. Some of us, we go through difficulties and we don't pass that test. And it's just, um, it's, it's an opportunity for us to just um, be in the Word and, and, to, and to continue to grow. Um, but for those that, um, that, that do mature in their faith to that extent, um, it turns out to be an amazing testimony um, to those who are, who are watching, um, those who are listening. So that's, um, that's to all to, to say biblical counseling is not insensitive or uncaring. You, you want to meet the moment, uh, meet the need to, with, with the right kind of counsel. Um, number six is, is really kind of a carryover from number five. Biblical counseling is not canned methodology, but rather life-on-life -life, um, activity. One of the things I appreciate from Ben Murray's presentation this morning, he emphasized discipleship in his missions presentation. He emphasized life-on-life. You know, it's not just, hey, come see me in the office and let's talk, but it's, um, it's really being involved in the lives of others, um, be, becoming a friend to, to others, um, spending time with others, um, going out and, and enjoying um, the, the company of others. So it's life on life. It's, it's this idea that, you know, you, you want to be involved in each other's lives. That's, that's when biblical counseling is the most effective, that you're not just simply um, meeting someone for a brief time, but, but, you know, you have, you know, you're maintaining that touch with them. Um, you know, ongoing as, uh, as you're growing. And uh, number seven, the next page. <coughs> biblical counseling is not just about giving biblical principles to apply, but is rather focused upon a person to follow. It is not about giving biblical principles to apply, um, not just about giving biblical principles to apply, but it is rather focused on a person to follow. This is important because we will be giving biblical principles. That, that's biblical counseling. You want to be able to share biblical principles that you're going to be giving into people's life. But ultimately, biblical counseling works best when that person's eyes are upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Hebrews 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, um, Ben quoted that this morning as well. 
Uh, I'll go ahead and read that to you. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, that, that's a, it's a very powerful verse. Um, this idea of fixing our eyes upon Jesus, and if you remember my sermon last Sunday, um, I talked about the fact that um, you know we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, but that's not really helpful unless you understand Jesus, unless you know his ministry, unless you know how he conducted his ministry. You know, that phrase, what would Jesus do, is, is of no value unless you understand what Jesus actually did and why. And, and you can only get there by reading through the gospel accounts, reading the epistles. And, and really, it's not just the gospel accounts. You know, sometimes people will read the gospel accounts and they'll just focus on the red letters, right? Let me, let me just read through the words of Jesus Christ as if the rest of the, the, the book is, is not as important. Uh, well, you know, God tells us that all of Scripture is God's word. And uh, when we have the epistles, when we have like letters like Ephesians and First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, we have letters from Peter and, and uh, those kinds of letters. Those are actual letters written to actual believers reflecting how they can be more like Christ. Okay, Real letters from the apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ to real believers showing them how they can be, become more like Christ. So to fix our eyes upon Jesus means that we spend the rest of our life in the Bible, um, studying the Bible, reading the Bible. It is really our um, life manual, right? I mean, if there's an owner, owner's manual for our own life, it is the Bible and, uh, and, and nothing else. You know, I remember in, I remember in college, um, they, they used to run this commercial for the book Dianetics, right? Dianetics, and they called it the owner's manual to life, or something like that. And uh, and I remember, you know, being you know being ignorant at that time, and, and you know, just seeing that, I'm like, wow, that sounds great, right? So I picked up the book, um, I read through it, and it just didn't make any sense to me. And um, and I'm glad it didn't make any sense to me. You know, that's uh, that that's actually the kind of the book to Scientology, which um, has a lot of problems. Um, that's that is a cult. Um, but when you read through the Bible, it has much to say about us and our lives and how to counsel ourselves, how to grow in Christ. Um, so we always want to be focused upon Jesus Christ. All of the Bible points to Jesus Christ. Um, the last prayer meeting we had, uh, Mel, Mel Rebick shared a, a really great uh, devotional about the road to Emmaus. Um, the road, what is the road to Emmaus? You know, after Jesus Christ um, was resurrected and he returned to the disciples, he spent 40 days with them on this road to Emmaus, and they didn't initially realize it was Jesus Christ. But 40 days, and he's showing how all the scriptures point to, to, to Christ. Um, and that's, um, that's what we have in our hands, that we have a, a book, um, the, the Word of God, all of it in, in some way points to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to remain fixated on a person. We want to use him as our example. And when Hebrews 12.2 talks about the fact that he endured, he, he endured what it says, he endured the cross, um, despising the shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. This is to say that when Jesus Christ was here on earth, we're talking about the man who is the reigning king. Okay, we're talking about the man that when he comes the second time, um, he is going to establish very clearly his authority over everyone on earth. And he has the full power and authority to do so, and no one can stop him. But the first time he came, he very much humbled himself. 
Um, he endured the shame. He endured the pain. He endured all that was involved in the cross, and he did it for us. And so when we look at him as an example, um, we want to remember what he endured for our sake, because whatever we endure in this life, it actually does not even come close to what our Lord Jesus Christ endured for our sake. You know, and so that's one of those examples that just, just understanding what Jesus Christ endured can be helpful in counseling our own hearts just through the trials that we're going through. And let me take you on that note, let me take you to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. This is not in the notes, but this is a bonus. First Peter, and, and this is, um, you know, and I'm going to do this. I'll, I'll, take, um, I'll take some opportunities every now and then to pull out some scriptures and just give you some examples of biblical counseling right from these scriptures. And First Peter is a great example of that. First um, Peter, uh, the context, and, and this is where, you know, the context is so important. Um, if you remember, there was an emperor named Nero. Is an evil emperor by the name of Nero in Roman history. And uh, what happened in the city of Rome is that there was this big fire that broke out in Rome. And, uh, and a large portion of Rome just got destroyed from this fire. Um, and and it, was, it was this area that was adjacent um, to, the, to, to, the, um, to where Nero was residing, you know, his palace. And um, instead of rebuilding those neighborhoods, um, Nero just ended up extending his palace to cover those burnt up neighborhoods. And so, of course, you know what's going to come next. When you do that, then people are going to start to say, ah, he's the one that started the fire. Um, now, we don't know that he started the fire, and, and there's, um, there's actually good, good reason to believe that he didn't. Um, but the fact that he did that raised a lot of suspicion, and so he needed a scapegoat. He, he needed someone to pin the blame on. And so what he started to say is like, no, we, have it, uh, we know for sure that it was actually the Christians, the ones who worshiped Jesus Christ, who actually started that fire. And um, not only did he bring that accusation, but obviously, you know, being the emperor, he also brought about the persecution. And so Christians were getting impaled right in the city of Rome in public um, on display um, for a crime that they did not commit. Um, that's, that, that's the context from which Peter writes this. That's what's happening when Peter writes this letter. And, and he's writing probably from within Rome to people, to believers outside. Peter is obviously safe, but he's writing to believers outside who are worried that that persecution is going to go outside of Rome out to the areas that they're in. And if you're writing to someone who is worried, who is anxious, who is paralyzed with fear, and you can imagine, I mean, if, if you were told that Christians are, you know, Christians are being, uh, are being impaled in Los Angeles, you know, and, and the, the, the governor had just started there, but it looks like he's going to make his way out to other parts of California. If I said that, I mean, a lot of us would be, you know, they're, you know we're not going to go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, okay, well, whatever. You know, we're, we're going to be afraid. You know, we're going to be anxious. We're going to be fearful and whatnot. And the question is, you know, how would you comfort someone who's going through that? And I'll tell you the way Peter comforts people. I mean, in First Peter chapter 1, after his uh, greeting in the first two verses, look at verse 3. Look at what he says. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance, and look at this, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know how Peter comforts those who are worried about persecution? He comforts them by reminding them of the great gift of salvation that they have. Reminding them of the greatness of our God. 
reminding them that no matter what happens, you have treasure in heaven that can never be taken away. And that's how you start. You, you know, you start with, with the big picture. You start with the great promises that, that God has given us. That no matter what man may do to us here on this earth, in this world, for whatever reason, um, we have something great to look forward to. And then not only that, but look at verse 6. And this is an amazing statement. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, and talking about that truth that he just pointed out, that, that, we have, that, that we have our salvation, we have gifts in heaven, an inheritance in heaven awaiting for us. But he's also going to point out something else. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Okay, so you've been distressed by various trials. So he's acknowledging the trials. And then verse 7, here, here's the purpose of that trial it's so that the proof of your faith which is more precious than gold that is perishable even though even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ so, so he's saying that you know you're you're going through trials you're distressed but we, we can greatly rejoice not only in our salvation not only in the great inheritance that we have but the proof of your faith is going, to be, is going to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that's to say that when you endure those trials, when you endure those trials in a way that honors God, it's going to bring praise and glory to God. You know, and, and this is a theme that runs throughout this letter. It is rich. And, and when you get to chapter 3, turn with me to chapter 3. You know, chapter 3, verse uh, 13, you know, and basically Peter's message um, in this book is like, look, don't stop doing what you're doing. Make sure that you stay faithful to, to walking the walk as a Christian, no matter what. Just, just do it. And, and, you know, for the most part, if we prove, if we're zealous for doing what is good, uh, for the most part, you know, in most cases, society is not going to punish us. I mean, that's just a general truth. If you're zealous for doing what is good, you're not going to get punished. Um, chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says this, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, it's amazing that he asked that question, knowing that persecution, persecution is actually happening to Christians in Rome. But it's still a general truth that if you're zealous for what is good, who, who is there to harm you? The, the obvious implication of that is that you won't be harmed if you're, ze if you're zealous, if, it, if you're excited, if you, you prove to be, if you, prove to be um, you know, energetic for, for doing what is good. But verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So what does Peter say? He says, you know what, if you prove zealous for what is good, um, you won't be harmed, but if you are harmed, you will be blessed. You know what I call that? As a Christian, that's a win-win situation. That's what Peter just portrayed. In the midst of suffering and persecution, you have a win-win situation. Just keep doing good, and you won't be persecuted. And if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, see, you can be persecuted for committing a crime. That's not going to bring glory and honor to God. That's not suffering for righteousness' sake. You know, if you suffer for breaking a law, that's not righteousness. You know, which is really the temptation that a lot of Christians feel when these things kind of happen. They think about breaking the rules, about, you know, um, you know, trying to strike back, you know, trying to, you know, wanting to maybe assassinate the emperor and all those kinds of things. And in fact, the, the, the testimony from church history, um, when we think about, um, you know, if you studied uh, church history and, and the destruction of the temple that happened in A.D. 70, 
Okay, so A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple, and, and the Jews were, were, um, were overcome by the Romans, and, and the Jews fought back. The, the Jews fought back when the Romans were starting to persecute the Jews. And uh, there was this uh, final battle in a place called Masada, the Battle of Masada, and that was like the final battle before the Jewish people were defeated. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because when you look through the historical accounts, it's just the Jews that fought back, not the Christians. And I believe that one of the primary reasons why the Christians did not fight back is because of letters like this, where Peter said, you remain zealous for what is good. You know, suffer, if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for righteousness' sake. You're not suffering because you're being disobedient um, to government. You're not being disobedient to the emperor. And, you know, that's one of my problems, um, you know, when I look at politically what's going on around us. And, and here's an example of biblical counseling for someone who, you know, is, is um, you know, so upset about the political scenery around us and so angry about Trump and how he conducts himself and maybe even angry about the Democratic Party, how they conduct themselves and, and whatnot. But, you know, even if um, the president were not Trump, but were, say, Barack Obama or one of these presidential candidates, if you were to read through First Peter, you know what it tells us to do? It tells us to honor the president. In here it says honor the king, but if Peter is telling them to honor the king, then you can conclude from that for us that we need to honor our presidents. You know what that that means is that we don't you know we don't go to Facebook to to start trashing our president and and saying bad things even if we disagree with that person. You know which I, I see unfortunately a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump. Um, I see a lot of in the name of Christ even people who are believers or claim to be believers saying just um, a, a lot of hateful things um, about about Trump on Facebook that, I mean, I, I didn't even say about Barack Obama, and I didn't like Barack Obama as a president, right? Um, so, I mean, this is, this is an example of biblical counseling just in terms of how we are to respond to, you know, kind of the social, political events that, that happen, you know, around us. I mean, Peter has much to, to say there. Um, so, verses 13 and 14, 14, even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. It says, and do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, Okay, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but, verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Um, sanctify, that word sanctify means to make holy, make, make the name of Christ holy in your hearts. Okay, now that's a, that's a wonderful statement, but what does that mean? Right, I mean, we, we can say that, and everyone can say amen, but what does that mean? Well, thankfully, Peter doesn't leave us in the dark. What does it mean to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts? He says, after that, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So you know what's wonderful about this? In, the, in times of persecution, and especially when, when there's this kind of pressure against those who believe in Christ, you know, if you're zealous for just doing what is good, you, you know, if, if you don't strike back, if you don't return evil for evil, you know, if you don't engage in, in this bitterness um, towards those who, who persecute uh, Christians, but you just remain dedicated to glorifying God, there's a good chance that someone's going to ask, why do you do it? Why do you do it? You know, people will say, you know, if I was in your position, I would not be responding the way you're responding. Why, why do you do it? You know, and Peter here says, now that's an opportunity to make a defense to everyone who asks you. You know, where's your hope coming from? You know, this doesn't make sense. But that's an opportunity to be able to share Christ. That's an opportunity to be able to share the, the truth with people around us. So we always want our testimony to be one that, uh, that, that reflects the, the hope that comes in the future, no matter how bad things in this world can get. What we want people around us to see is that there is always hope. Because the hope that we have can never be surpassed by the troubles in this world. Amen?
Now, let me say that again. The hope that we have in Christ can never be surpassed by the trials of this world, ever. The, the glories that we have awaiting us are far greater than even the worst trials that we can go through on this world. And that's what we hold on to. That's what we hold on to. That's what we counsel ourselves with. You know, it's kind of like if, um, you know, if, if a person was told that um, at the end of this year, you're going to receive a massive inheritance that's going to, you're going to be set up for life. You're going to get millions and millions of dollars, you know, billions of dollars, whatever it may be. You're going to win the lottery. If someone could be told for sure that that was going to happen at the end of the year and you're going to be set up for life, <clears throat> do you think that's going to change their attitude for, in all the difficulties that they face this year? Knowing that at the end of the year, they're going to be set for life? Yeah, I mean, people aren't going to, you know, hey, do whatever you want to me this year, right? I know at the end of the year, I'm getting a massive inheritance and I'm going to be set up for life, right? It would for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and it depends on, on how much you're, you're focused upon that. But, you know, and the idea, the idea that I'm getting at is, is if you know that there's something great coming at the end of it, um, that is going to be what helps you endure our current situation. And even to a, le a much lesser extent, when you um, send your kids off to college, um, you know, what, what do you tell them? Like, look, just stay focused for four years and get your degree. You know, it's going to be hard. You're going to study like you've never studied before. You're going to have to spend more hours um, reading books and, and taking tests and getting prepared and all that. And I know it's going to be hard. You're going to have to, you know, you're, you're going to have to give up a, a lot of your social life. You're going to have to give up a lot of your freedoms. Just do it. Because after you get out, um, the next 50, 60 years of your life or however much longer you're going to be, it's going to be much better, right? I mean, how, do we not say that to kids when we send them off to college? You know, and, and if that's true for something like college in this life, how much more true is it for, in terms of a believer with the promise of heaven in the future? You know, we're not just being set up for 60 or 70 or 80 years. We're being set up for eternity. You know, that's, that's Peter's point when he says we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It can never be taken away. You know, the things that we buy in this world, they, they fade. We buy a brand new car, you know, we're, we're fortunate if it lasts 10 years. You know, for some people, I know they find ways to make their, their, their clunker last 20, 30 years. That's, you know, that's the exception, not the norm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, you buy a car, when you buy a house, you know that it's going to need maintenance. It's going to need repair. You know, even the, you know, everything that we get in this world, every material item that we get um, has a shelf life in which it ends. And we know that. And often when we go shopping for things, you know, you're going to do your research, right? If you're going to spend a lot of money on something, you want to spend money on something that's going to last you a while, that, that you're not going to have to replace after a few months. You're going to want something that, that's backed by, by a, maybe a lifetime warranty, you know, from the manufacturer that says, if it breaks down, we'll, we'll fix it or we'll cover half the cost or whatever it may be. You know, we place all this emphasis upon things that will last a long time. We don't have to worry about that in heaven because Peter says it is undefiled, will not perish, will not fade away. It will always be there. And that's the wonderful riches. That's the wonderful promise we have in heaven. And so can you see when you go through trials, reminding yourself of these great truths, Reminding yourself of what's coming in the future helps us to refocus on what's important now and how we can glorify God. Yeah, this, this life hurts. But when we think about what's coming in the future, I'd rather have that hope than to be comfortable now and not have that hope, right? And that's why I often say from the pulpit, if you have everything in this world but you don't have Christ, you have nothing. If you have Christ but you're suffering in this world, you still have everything. 
and, and that can never be taken away. Um, so that, that's just an example of, of a passage that I love to go to that, that helps to even comfort my heart when there are difficulties, that I use to try to comfort others when they go through difficulties. And that's why knowing the scriptures in context, knowing the scriptures uh, you know, in that kind of detailed fashion um, helps you to kind of reset your mindset, right? It helps you to, to see what's important. And I think of another example, when we send military personnel overseas, um, we send military personnel overseas, they have a mission that they're sent on to complete. And they're told not to, you look, don't worry about, you know, civilian matters that are going on around you. You know, there may be squabbles, there may be people screaming, there may be people throwing things at you and whatnot. You're not going to worry about that. Now, under most circumstances, if we're walking the street and people are throwing things at us, we're going to respond to it. You know, but, but, but someone who is serving in the armed forces overseas, they're not going to respond to that because they have a more important mission to take care of. And that's the mindset we want to have. You know, when, when Paul says your citizenship is in heaven, you know what that means? We're on mission here. We're on mission here. You know, we want to be focused on that mission and not get, not get sidetracked with all the worldly things that are going on around us. You know, and that's, that's, that's biblical counseling. Um, now, let's, um, returning back to this page. And, and by the way, when I, when I go through this, we're probably going to go over time. So I'm, I'm planning on going an hour and 15 minutes at least. And if you can take it, we'll go even longer than that. Um, but uh, when we did this at um, Grace Community Church, um, it was two hours each session. It would be two hours each session, and, uh, and, and so for part one, it would be two, it would be eight sessions, two hours each, and there would be like a, like a break in the middle. Um, so we'll, we'll go far as, as far as we can and, uh, and, and see where it takes us. Okay, so part B, part B, what biblical counseling is. We've talked about what biblical counseling is not. Now, what biblical counseling is, um, B1 says uh, biblical counseling discerns, desires, thinking, and behavior that God wants to change. It discerns desires, thinking, and behavior that God wants to change. And uh, Hebrews 4.12, um, that's a well-known verse. It's a memory verse for a lot of kids. The Word of God is, is uh, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And um, it, it's, it, it's, able to, it's able to cut through the thoughts and, and intentions of man, amongst other things. Um, so what, what does that say about us? So let me read for you that entire verse, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know what um, this means? Is that the word of God knows your heart even better than you do. The Word of God knows your heart even better than you do. You want to be able to take control of your, your life, and obviously we never have control. God has control. But if you want to be, have better control of how you respond to things, how you react, um, be in the Word of God because the Word of God knows you better than you know yourself. And, and it will uncover things about yourself that you didn't even realize before. And, um, and, I, and I tell you, when it does, um, it's going to be conviction. You know, you're going to see things in the scriptures and you're going to be convicted of, um, of just how well the scriptures know you and just, just how sinful each of us are. Um, you know, the, the, the reality as, as a Christian, and I, this is certainly true for myself, I've heard this from many great and godly men, the more you grow in the faith, the more of a sinner you recognize you are. 
you know, the, the more wretched you, you realize you are, the, the, the more, you know, the more deceitful you realize your heart is. Um, Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? You know, the, the Lord understands your heart. And, uh, you, you know, so when people say, and I hear people say this all the time, you know, well, God knows my heart. And um, when people say that, they, they mean that in a good thing. And, and I'm thinking to myself, that's not a good thing. Okay, don't try to justify yourself with God knows my heart. Because if I say, well, God knows my heart, what I mean by that, God knows my heart, it's even more wicked than I realize it is. You know, so, so God knows my, my heart. Well, yeah, he, and he, he sees the wickedness that you don't even see. And so we, we use the scriptures to help even discern the thoughts and intentions that are within our own heart. So biblical counseling is about helping us to discern what those desires, thoughts, and intentions are, what, what's leading to that behavior. And uh, another good example, you know, when, when you have someone who says they're feeling depressed, um, and, uh, and we'll get more into depression at a later time, but you have someone that says they're, they're feeling depressed. Um, in every single case I've, um, I've spoken to someone, and I know this is not always the case, but in every single case I've had, and I've come across this often, if you just sit down and ask them, well, what is it you're feeling depressed about? They, they, they have an answer. They have an answer. And when they give the answer, then you'll, you'll start to realize um, what hopes that person has. Okay, like, you know, for instance, um, you know, I, maybe you're talking to a young man who's depressed that um, they didn't get the job that they wanted. You know, they're really, really depressed. Um, well, I mean, the, the simple counsel is, well, well, keep trying, keep working. That's not, that's not the, the job for you. But if they're really, really feeling depressed, it's time for a reality check, right? You know, I mean, there's a lot of biblical truths you can bring to that. It was like, it's like, well, that's obviously not the job that God has in his will for you, right? You know, God ha has willed for you to be somewhere else, not, not to be at this place. You know, but, um, but when a person reveals that, it means that they're putting all their hope into whatever it is that's causing them to depression. You know, de depression is, is often a, it's, it's disappointment over circumstances around us that do not meet our expectations. It is a disappointment of circumstances around us that do not meet our expectations. But when you understand and know the scriptures, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, if you believe that God causes all things to come together for good, all things, not just the good things, or not just some of the bad things. Okay, all things. If you believe that God causes all things to come together for good, that verse, if you really believe that, you will never have a reason to be depressed, ever, ever. <coughs> now, that's not to say that, that we're not going to grieve. There are not going to be times where we, we suffer loss. We're going to grieve those losses. Um, but the sovereignty of God is going to be a bedrock that's going to help lift you out of that that depression. But when you when you get to talking to people and finding out, okay, well, what is it that you're depressed about? You're going to get closer and closer to what the real issue is. Okay, because depression today, depression is often treated with medication. Take this medication. Well, the medication is treating the symptoms. It's not treating the source. You want to get to the source. In fact, a lot of medicines we take, unfortunately, that's, that's what it's doing. It's just treating the symptoms. It's not getting to the source. You know, our, our goal as biblical counseling is not to, is not simply just to try to help ease the symptoms, you know, but it's, it's to try to find the, the, the source of, of where that's coming from. Because a child of God, a child of God who um, is rejoicing in the Lord will, will always find a reason to rejoice. Um, and here's another great uh, biblical counseling passage. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and uh, we'll look at verse 13 first, and then I'll back up from there. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. If you watch sports, um, probably second to John 3, 16, Philippians 4, 13 shows up often. Um, you, you know, you watch sports, you, you'll see people having written on their cheek or on their helmet, John 3, 16, or uh, on their shoulder, whatever it may be. Um, Philippians 4, 13 is another, another very, very popular one. And Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the way that people often use that verse is that whatever I want to do, God is going to strengthen me to do it. That's not what that verse says. That is not at all what that verse says. Okay, but that's often how it's referred to. That's often how it's used. And, and this is, again, the importance of knowing things in context. So let's back up to verse 10. Now, realize, first of all, in the book of Philippians, Paul is in prison. Okay, you'll, you'll know that if you read through all of Philippians. Paul is in prison. He's writing to people who are concerned about him while he is in prison. All right, and uh, the Philippians, they, they loved him so much that they sent a man named Epaphroditus to go and minister to his needs. They sent Epaphroditus to go and minister to his needs. Epaphroditus actually got really sick, nearly died, um, but he, he survived. And then came back to the Philippians and brought this letter from Paul. And so Paul is going to address their concern for him. And in verse 10, he says this, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. All right, so he, he's talking about the fact that they sent someone to minister to him. And he's like, I rejoice that you, you were concerned about me, that you were so concerned that you sent someone to minister to me. But look at verse 11. He says, not that I speak from want. So in other words, not that I needed it. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That's important. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Um, you ever struggle with contentment? All of us have, right? You, you know anyone that has struggled with contentment? Yeah, I mean, all of us. All of us know people that have struggled with contentment. As a, as a Christian, and it's very important that a person is a Christian to be able to give this counsel, because if you're talking to a non-believer, they need Christ first and foremost. They're not going to get comfort from biblical counseling unless they know Christ first. Okay, but, but here, here we go. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means. What does that mean? That means even if I have very little, you know, I, I don't have much to go on, um, I, I have learned how to get along. Remember, he, he talked about in verse 11, learn to be content. He has learned to be content with humble means. And then he goes on. I, have also, I also know how to live in prosperity. So whether I have a little or whether I have a lot, I know how to get through, regardless of how much I have, whether it's a little or a lot. And then he goes on in verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. He has learned the secret. In other words, he has learned to be content, whether he has a whole lot or whether he has nothing, whether he has a lot to, to be able to fill himself with or whether he is going hungry, whether he has much or he has very little. And then he goes on verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know what that verse is saying? It's not saying God is going to give me the strength to do whatever I I want to do. It's God is going to strengthen me for whatever circumstance he wills me to go through. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what that verse is about. That's the verse that is not um, something that you recite when you um, when things are going well. It's the verse that you recite to your heart when things are not going well. That God will give you the strength to endure that. He will give you the strength to endure that. And even earlier in this chapter, um, stay in Philippians 4, Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 4. 
chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Now, that's hard because, you know, we're anxious about a lot of things. Paul here says be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So in other words, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling that anxiety come over you, the proper way to respond, go to God in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Let your request be known to him. That's the first step when you're feeling anxious. Go to God in prayer. And verse 7, and here's what is the promise from God. It says, and the peace of God. You know, and the peace of God is not like the peace of the world. Um, ben mentioned that this morning as well when he quoted uh, John, talking about the peace that Jesus Christ gives is different from the peace of the world. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a wonderful promise. Talking about difficulties and anxiety, you go to God in prayer and you will have a peace of God that cannot be that 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 cannot be explained with mere words. You know, can't be logically explained to someone who doesn't know Christ. You know, it can't even be logically explained by human means. It can only be explained supernaturally. This is a supernatural peace. And it's going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, and that that once again, and right from there, later on in that chapter, that's when Paul goes into learning how to be content with little, learning how to be content with much. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I mean, this is a letter from Paul that says, you know what? You can find joy in any and every circumstance. In any and every circumstance. Well, let me go back to, I'll cover just a little bit more. Let's see, biblical counseling. Biblical counseling discerns desires, thinking, behavior. And to point number two, biblical counseling uses God's word by the Holy Spirit to change desires, thinking, and behavior. And I think we're, we're already seeing some examples of that. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, that's what I referred to earlier when Paul said that you are to lay aside the old self and you're, put on, you're to put on to the new self. And uh, we'll talk about that more in detail a little bit later. Point number three, biblical counseling seeks the sanctification of the Christian into Christ-likeness for the glory of God. It seeks the sanctification of the Christian into Christ-likeness for the glory of God. This will be the last verse we cover, and I'll go ahead and close this out. Go to Romans 8.28. I've been mentioning that. We might as well take a look at it. Um, Romans 8.28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8.28. This is, um, if you don't have this verse memorized, um, I would strongly suggest you memorize it. Um, this is this is another one of these verses that when things are difficult, you can never recite this to yourself enough. Um, Romans 8.28, the Apostle Paul says, And we know that God causes all things, not just some, not just most. He causes all things to work together for good. Now let me stop there. We know that there's a lot of evil in the world. We know that there's a lot of evil happening. Don't think for a moment that Paul is ignorant to that. Okay, Paul is not writing from some ivory tower where he's being pampered with a silver spoon and all the finest things in life. That's not Paul. 
Paul is the one that's been persecuted. He's been imprisoned. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. He's been shipwrecked, right? I mean, he's, he's been hurled, hurled all kinds of insults and abuse. Um, he's had persecution everywhere he goes. And yet he can say this. God causes all things to work together for good, but it's not for good for everyone, all right? It's not good for everyone. It's, it's all things work together for good to who? To those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And what that is saying is that God causes all things to come together for good, specifically for those who are in Christ. And this is why biblical counseling doesn't work with a non-believer. Biblical counseling to a non-believer is called sharing the gospel. You need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ. And so sometimes when um, parents will bring their children or bring um, people in their family that, hey, can you counsel this person? Um, and, and the person is clearly not a believer, you know, one of the first things I'll say is, that, oh, sure, I'll, I'll talk to the person, but um, there's only a limit to biblical wisdom I can give to this person because ultimately that person needs Christ. You know, I, I might be able to share some, some general principles, some, some things that, that might be able to help that person, but really the real value comes from the scriptures, um, but that's not going to be, have any meaning to him unless he comes to Christ. Um, so that's, you know, it, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Great, great verse on the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. Not just that he is sovereign, but that he is good and he is good all the time, right? He is in total control and he causes all things to come together for good. But verse 29 speaks of purpose, purpose. Verse 29 he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of who? His son. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You know what that tells me? That God's sovereignty in your life, all the things that he brings into your life, good or bad, and definitely the trials in your life, those are trials that God has sovereignly placed into your life with the purpose of making you more like Christ. It is with the purpose of making you more like Christ. And, you know, sometimes uh, I think all of us, we, want, we say, I want to be more like Christ. I, want to be more, I don't know a Christian that, that would ever deny wanting to be more like Christ. And yet the, um, the irony is that when we go through trials, we want to get out of it quick. We want God to just remove it from us. You know, you know get that away from us. So, no, no, I don't want trials. Lift up these trials. And in fact, well, we may start to, um, you know, we might, may start to respond in, in very ungodly ways because of the trials that we're in. We may start complaining. We may, we may start to wonder if God really loves us and, and whatnot. And, and all the time not realizing that those trials are in our life in order to make us more like Christ. If we want to be more like Christ, we can't reject the means that God uses to make us more like Christ. There, there's no way around the fact that, that, that in order to improve or become better or to grow in any kind of way, it's never easy. You, know, you have to go through difficulties. I mean, even in athletics, people understand that. You know, even, you know, as people have been um, talking about and, and reminiscing on Kobe Bryant, well, what was, what, what stood out to everyone about Kobe Bryant, the one commonality was his work ethic. You know, he, 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 was, he was just undyingly um, committed to becoming the best basketball player he could be. You know, and that's true for any walk of life, any sport, any activity you go into, that the more you're willing to sacrifice, that the better you're going to be at it. You know, well, in this case, what we're saying is that for you to become more like Christ, and we think about the example of Christ, did Christ live a, a nice and happy life while he was here on earth? No. I mean, there was never a man in the history of mankind who was more persecuted, more rejected unjustly than the God-man Jesus Christ. 
No one, because look, whatever we suffered, it will never come close to what Jesus Christ suffered, right? And what, however we're, we're treated, it's never as bad as Jesus Christ was treated. And yet Jesus Christ is infinitely more righteous than we were. Whatever we went through, he certainly, and, and compared to what he went through, you know, you could argue that we as sinners in various ways, we deserve what we got. But Jesus Christ never deserved any of the trials, any of the afflictions, any of the persecutions that he received. And he received it worse than any of us will ever have to receive it. You know, so when we, we think about me being made more like Christ, well, Jesus himself is who he is, partially as a result of what he did in his first coming. That he humbled himself. You know, that's what Paul is saying. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, he submitted himself. He, he was obedient to, to that point. And so to make ourselves more like Christ, we've got to remember that in his first coming, he was willing to endure the cross um, for the sake of our salvation. And so when we look at this verse once again, all those trials in our life are there to make us more like Christ. And instead of um, being bitter, um, instead of being anxious, there are, you know what, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for bringing these trials into my life in order for me to grow through it. Because I know without these trials, I will not grow. You know, you, you don't grow into becoming more, a more godly Christian by going to a monastery and, and shutting yourself off from the rest of the world. You grow into becoming more like Christ by walking like Christ. And that, that is our goal. That's, that's what we all seek to do. Um, so I know I didn't, um, we still got quite a bit of material to go through, but I'm intentionally going through this slow because I want you to kind of start to absorb uh, the, this, these kinds of concepts and understand what biblical counseling is all about. Any questions? Was this clear? Is this helpful? All right. Um, I, I guarantee you um, stick this out and, and even read um, some of those resources I talked about. And, and what I'll do... Um, sometime this week, I'll, I'll put together the, the page numbers that I recommend people to read out of those books if you want to read along um, before e each of our lessons. And uh, that's going to be very helpful as well. Because you don't want, um, you don't want your, your, your training in this to just be limited to the time that we're here on Sunday evening. So I would recommend you go back, you reread some of the points that we covered, look back at some of those scriptures that we covered, and, um, and even meditate and memorize some of those scriptures. That's going to be very, very helpful to you. All right, let's go ahead and close out in prayer.